0: The first time I remember reflecting on the meaning of the word utopia it was when I was assigned to read Thomas More's classic book by that title. Anybody read Old school, right? Thomas More's utopia. Uh, in his conception, utopia was spelled with the Greek, Greek prefix that looks to us like O-U. It's actually omicron upsilon, right? Uh, and it means not. So it's kind of like you put A in front of things in Greek, you can also put an omicron upsilon. So it's that. And the prefix was attached to the root word topos, meaning place. So for more, utopia meant no place. I remember thinking... That's kind of great. He puts, you know, right there up front that utopia is nowhere. No place is perfect for everyone for all times and places. If you'll indulge me in just one more brief moment of linguistic nerdery. If Mord had meant something more like our modern conception of utopia, he would have used the prefix what looks to us like EU or epsilon, upsilon, meaning good. So, good place instead of no place. A lot of people are familiar with that Greek prefix that looks like EU with euthanasia, right? Good death, so it's similar. Uh, And if we had all day, I'd actually pause right now, and if we had a screen that would drop down, I would invite us to watch the entirety of the first season of NBC's surprisingly insightful sitcom, The Good Place. Anybody? Good Place fans out there? It's, It's surprisingly good. It is a shockingly good introduction to ethics, and a brilliant example of how a seeming utopia, an alleged good place, can end up being a torturous hellscape. The Good Place is streaming on Netflix if you're curious to learn more or if you prefer your TV and the non-fiction flavors. Uh, I mentioned in passing a few weeks ago, Netflix also has a great documentary out right now called Wild, Wild Country. Uh, sounds like, okay, who's watched that? All right, quite a few of you now. All right, very good. Uh, it's a fascinating case study about how a Hindu guru formed a utopian community in eastern Oregon that went deeply off the rails (laughs) it's a riveting example of truth being stranger than fiction in so many ways and if this the things that happened in this documentary if it were not true I'd be like that's ridiculous that would never happen and yet it does again and again Uh, and it's a community that seemed utopian in many ways on the surface but to be honest was rotten at its core And while I'm tempted to speak at length about both the good place and wild, wild country, I will instead share something briefer, which is a poem that I encountered recently while attending the National AWP Conference, the Association of Writers and Writing Programs. So AWP, for those of you who, it's like the national conference for people with like MFAs, Whereas like MLA, the Modern Language Association, that's like the national conference of people with like English PhDs, so the, this conference is really about writing. I went, with my, I went because my wife is an English professor at, English community, uh, at Frederick Community College as well as a published writer, and for me it was really interesting actually to attend a professional conference outside my area of expertise. And one of the many things that stood out to me at AWP is that it is a gathering of people to whom practices like writing poetry really matters, you know, like in a transformative kind of way. And uh, of all the poems, many great poems that I heard at this conference, the one that stood out to me most is Good Bones by uh, Maggie Smith. As you listen to it, I invite you to keep in mind the tension we've begun to explore between the idea of utopia as a good place and utopia as no place. Good Bones by Maggie Smith. Life is short, though I keep this from my children. Life is short, and I've shortened mine in a thousand delicious, ill-advised ways a thousand deliciously ill-advised ways that I'll keep from my children. (laughs) The world is at least 50% terrible, and that's a conservative estimate, though I'll keep this from my children. For every bird, there is a stone thrown at a bird. For every loved child, a child broken. Life is short and the world is at least half terrible, and for every kind stranger there is one who would break you, though I keep this from my children. I'm trying to sell them the world. Any decent realtor walking you through a real crap hole just chirps on and on about the good bones. This place could be beautiful, right? You, you could make this place beautiful. That poem strikes me as a sense, uh, in a sense, as conservative in the best sense of the word. Hope in what an individual might accomplish, in this case, to restore a currently run down piece of property but tempered by a realism about the limits of human nature, the human capacity for evil and a basic grasp of the tragic dimension of our existence. On the one hand, Smith's poem, Good Bones, it's perhaps a bit too pessimistic. We can talk about that. On the other hand, one of the reasons her poem resonated with me is that our tradition of Unitarian Universalism has often had the opposite problem. In rightly rejecting overly pessimistic theology, like Original Sin, for example... Our theological forebears sometimes overcompensated by being overly optimistic about both the future as well as the potential of humans and human society to achieve perfection. One influential example of what I'm talking about is from the late 19th century, the Unitarian minister James Freeman Clark. He helped popularize this idea of the progress of mankind onward and upward forever. Some of you that grew up Unitarian may have even grown up, you know, instead of having the Ten Commandments on the, the uh wall of the sanctuary a lot of Unitarian congregations had James Freeman Clark's five points of a new theology which was intentionally a rejection of Calvinism right there so it was uh, if I can remember off the top of my head the fatherhood of God the brotherhood of man the leadership of Jesus salvation by character and the progress of mankind onward and upward forever That 19th century, uh, uh, it became a theological convention that progress was essentially inevitable. An even more famous example is from another 19th century Unitarian minister, Theodore Parker, and this got picked up on and adapted by Martin Luther King Jr. But Parker said before him, I do not pretend to understand the moral universe. The arc is a long one, but from what I see, I am sure that it bends toward justice." But that 19th century liberal optimism, the progress of mankind onward and upward forever, that the arc of the universe bends toward justice, it's more difficult to maintain today. A major reason is that our 19th century ancestors had no way of predicting 20th century events like the horrors of World War I or the Holocaust and many others, which starkly reminded us that progress is just not guaranteed. Here in the early 21st century, we also know more about our place in the universe than our late 19th century forebears did. In the wake of paradigm-shifting discoveries by Einstein, by Hubble, and others, we're going to talk about some of those next week, we know the universe does not bend toward justice. If anything, it bends towards entropy toward disorder, toward less organization and structure, toward, if you want to be technical about it, and I know some of you do, it bends toward an equilibrium of inert uniformity. There is no inevitable progress. The only guarantee is the inevitable heat death of the universe. So that's the bad news. (laughs) The good news is we don't actually have to worry about that for a few trillion years. In the meantime, the question before us, in Dr. King's words, is where will we go from here? Chaos or community? In the longest term, entropy will win. But in the short term, we can, through cooperation and solidarity, choose to bend the universe, at least regionally, locally, provisionally, toward justice and peace, toward love and reconciliation. Along those lines, one of my favorite philosophers is the late American pragmatist Richard Rorty. He was intimately familiar with everything I had been outlining about progress not being inevitable, about science and entropy. Nevertheless, he wrote this line, one of my favorites from his writing. It goes like this. The utopian social hope that sprang up in 19th century Europe is still the noblest imaginative creation that we have on record. Knowing all that we know, the utopian social hope that sprang up in 19th century Europe is still the noblest imaginative creation of which we have record. It's similar to that hope of the United Nations, the preamble of which Mary read earlier. What I understand Rorty to be saying is that although it would be unreasonable of us to have the same naive optimism that our 19th century forebears had about the possibilities of achieving utopia, we would also be foolish to dismiss out of hand the nobility of what they invited us to imagine we might achieve as a species. So while we UUs shouldn't give up on these noble social hopes, such as our UU6 principle, the goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice, not merely for some, but for all, we should also be realistic about the limitations of human nature when working toward achieving that and other goals. On that point, I was listening to an interview a few months ago with one of my UU minister colleagues, and she said something that stopped me in my tracks. A lot of times when I'm listening to interviews, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know what you're going to say. And this this is really, I found it really arresting. The interview was with the Reverend Elizabeth Gwynn, who is the senior strategist for the UUA's Side with Love campaign. Side with Love is the UUA's public advocacy campaign that focuses on LGBT equity, on immigrant justice, on racial justice. So Reverend Gwen, she clearly cares about these 19th century utopian social hopes. And regarding the potential for achieving them here in the 21st century, I was fascinated to hear her say these words. We are already saved from perfection. We are already saved We are saved. We're saved from perfection. When I heard her say that, I thought, there is something deeply true about that. I also found myself just sort of making this natural exhale, just kind of like, kind of just relaxing for a second. We are already saved from perfection. (laughs) I find that actually a, a fairly liberating starting point. We can just go ahead and let that go. We are neither going to reach perfection nor be perfect in the process. I'd actually invite you to consider that there is no perfect. No perfect for all times and places, um, for all people. I don't actually even know what that would mean. Here's a little more context of that quote. After she said, we are already saved from perfection, she continued, doing this work, this work of justice, it's not neat and tidy. It's messy. It's messy. You can't get an app for it. We have to develop the spiritual fortitude to embrace discomfort and mistakes because we're going to be uncomfortable and we're going to make mistakes. Since it is impossible for us to achieve our goals perfectly, I hear that as an invitation to find some middle ground there in the messy middle that still includes fiercely advocating for justice, but also includes being compassionate with ourselves, with one another, and as well as realistic about our potential as well as the limitations of human beings and our species. The process relational philosopher Bernard Loomer said it this way, the passion for perfection is actually a protest against the unmanageable vitalities of concrete life, life as it actually is, It is a yearning for the bloodless existence of a clean-cut, orderly abstraction. It is, in short, a yearning for death. That's not quite as direct as we are already saved from perfection, but he was a philosopher. Uh, But I appreciate the point that as long as we are alive, there's going to be messiness. There's going to be complexity, change, imperfection. The only way to get bloodless clean cut orderly abstraction is death, where at least from where I'm standing doesn't feel too perfect right now. I hope to revisit this topic of utopia at least annually for a few years. I have a lot to say about it. Uh, I think it's quite relevant to our UU tradition. I plan to invite us in some of these future sermons to explore some of these previous utopian experiments from history and see what we might learn from that. I've done that once before, some of you may remember, about our uh, Unitarian forebears in the 19th century who tried to start Brook Farm up in Massachusetts. Um, It didn't work out as planned. (laughs) <laughs> is the, the summary. Uh, that sermon is on our website if you're interested in reading it. From a different angle, I wanted to share just a few brief reflections about a new book from the Harvard professor, um, Steven Pinker, titled Enlightenment Now, the Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. Have any of you read that book or started it? <laughs> it's long. Uh, It's pretty easy to get through, though. Some of you may be familiar with his previous book, Along the Same Lines, called Better Angels of Our Nature, uh, Why Violence Has Declined. Uh, Also worth reading, also in TED Talk form, if you prefer the 20-minute version. Uh, This latest book from Pinker is an expansion of his previous argument that despite some of the many disturbing trends in the short run, things like rising authoritarianism in our world, rising wealth inequality, Pinker encourages us to not forget the longer-term trends over the past few centuries. Which actually contain a lot of good news uh, that has been made to increase the quality of human life for basically every human being on this planet. There's some legitimate criticisms of Pinker's perspective as kind of like TED Talk in book form. You know, a little over, a little oversimplified, a little um, excessively optimistic, a little technocratic. But it's also the case that he's really compiled some compelling evidence about major progress in our world. I cannot replicate in a few minutes what takes him more than 500 pages to detail, but I'll give you three prominent examples. Life expectancy, sustenance, and inequality. First, life expectancy. In the mid-18th century, not actually that long ago, the life expectancy in Europe and the Americas was around 35 where it had been parked for 225 years previous to that, which is as far back as we have data. Life expectancy for the world as a whole in the mid-18th century was 29. So back then, even in America, I should have been dead on average about five years ago. In contrast, today's life expectancy for the world on average is 71.4 years. In less than two centuries of progress, that's a remarkable addition of four decades to the average human life expectancy worldwide. Sustenance. In the past, there was a legitimate fear of worldwide hunger. But thanks to technological innovations from the Industrial Revolution, the world now needs less than a third of the land it used to need to produce the needed amount of food. The environmental scientist um, Jesse Ospel has estimated that we've actually already reached peak farmland. We may never again need as much as we use today. Further innovations are on the horizon through genetic engineering, um, things like CRISPR, which, a lot to say about that, right? Uh, Third, inequality. Today, more than 95% of American households below the poverty line have electricity, running water, flush toilets, a refrigerator, a stove, and a color TV. Just a century and a half earlier, the Rothschilds, the Astors, the Vanderbelts, had none of those things. Almost half of American households below the poverty line have a dishwasher, 60% have a computer, around two-thirds have a washing machine and a clothes dryer, more than 80% have an air conditioner, a video recorder, a cell phone. The rich have gotten richer, but their lives actually haven't gotten that much better. Warren Buffett may have more air conditioners than most people, he might even have better air conditioners than most people, but by historical standards, the fact that a majority of poor Americans even have an air conditioner, it's astonishing. Now don't get me wrong, I'm on the record about wealth inequality being a major threat to our democracy, and solutions along the line of a universal basic income, worldwide actually. Uh, So come the revolution, I've got my pitchfork ready, don't worry. At the same time, I appreciate Pinker's reminder that even as we continue to work toward our goal of peace, liberty, and justice, not merely for some, but for all, let's also pause periodically to celebrate the progress that we have made. And as always, I'm grateful to be on this journey toward peace and justice with all of you.